Hey, good morning. I want to welcome those who are worshiping at Pleasant View this morning, and of course, those of you who are worshiping in the chapel, uh, how wonderful it is to be able to be part of the worship services there and to plug in and see what Jesus has to teach us this morning. So uh, I'll get started this morning with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the beauty of this place and the beauty of our worship. I pray now, Lord, that your spirit will continue to move through the words that are shared as we turn our attention to your word in your name. Amen. Well, uh, let me see if I can get every one of us kind of caught up on where we are so far in the journey of this series. Basically, we're in this hot pursuit of what it would mean to have a biblical world view. And, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're, we're not trying to get to a place where we all fit into the same box as, as believers. That's not the goal of Christianity. In other words, uh, we, don't, we don't win when we all believe and act the same way. We don't, we don't win when we all vote the same way or have the same passions about society and, and culture. That's never the goal. In fact, I would suggest a biblical worldview is not a box, but actually a foundation or a platform. The way I've described it is this. A biblical worldview is a platform from which to experience and interpret life. This is an alternative to how we view the world being formed by the biggest mouth or the strongest opinion or the talking heads or the best debater. And so as we pursue a biblical worldview, we're looking at the creator's idea for how the world works best. That's what we're trying to do. And the Bible is actually full of instruction about the value of life about handling disagreements, about forgiveness, about dealing with anger, about caring for the environment or caring for people that are less fortunate, about, about how to handle wealth. All kinds of things are taught in Scripture uh, providing the platform for what would be a biblical worldview. And so the verses we've been using as the basis for this entire discussion have sort of provided if you will, a foundation for our platform or our biblical worldview. These are from the, the story of Colossians written by the Apostle Paul. And this is, this is how these verses go. For by God, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All those things, Paul says, were created by God and for God. And a good many of us sort of got excited about these verses because the biblical worldview, because what it means is someone actually knows what's, what's going on around here. There's actually a plan. It's not a roll of the dice or betting on the third pony in the race. It's not all chance and hope that we get through this world or this life unscathed. In fact, let me show you why this verse really matters. And, and, and in these words that we're actually told this, God has authority here because God created what is here. And what this means is someone's in charge. There's a plan. There is a way the world works best. And it will be discovered in Scripture. God made it so he knows how to run it. So we've been sort of building this platform of a biblical worldview and changing the way we see and interpret our lives. And our grand illustration of applying the biblical worldview has been in the areas of marriage, parenting, and sexuality. And you may ask, Tom, 
Why in the world did you choose those three areas to apply the biblical worldview to? And And I mean, why not something easy like forgiveness or mercy or saving the planet or grace or something? And believe me, I've asked myself the exact same question as I've been writing these messages. But let me tell you why we're looking at these specific topics. As I look at our culture, as I look at my personal experience, as I, as I do life with many of you, I know of no other areas that carry the level of brokenness in our lives like marriage, parenting, and sexuality. So, so if we're really going to take this whole biblical worldview on, on a test drive, I, I say why not put it through its paces? Why not see exactly what the biblical view is on those topics? And then see if it applies to our areas of greatest brokenness. And so here's the platform or biblical worldview we've come to so far. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it all belongs to God. God has entrusted part of what he created to each one of us. And then as we learned last week, we actually are accountable for what God has entrusted to us. So once again, sort of let me apply the butter to the bread as we turn our attention back to marriage this morning, using the same platform, the same biblical worldview. My marriage belongs to God. God has entrusted marriage to me and to my spouse. We are accountable to God for our marriage, for what we do with what he has entrusted to us. Now, I need to ask you to do something I've asked you to do throughout this entire series, and that's this. Let's set aside all of the baggage. Let's set aside all of our issues related to the topic and why this won't work. Let's set aside all of the poor teaching. Let's set aside all of the hurt, and let's just set that all right over here. And basically, let's lean in, and let's try to learn what the Bible actually says about the topic. So we're here to actually understand what the Scripture says, not to determine whether, whether or not we agree with it. We're here to understand what the Scripture says. And at the end of this, we can all make the call. We make the call, but, but make the call based on truth and what the Scripture actually says, not based on assumptions. Here's the definition of marriage we've discovered together in this series. Marriage is God's plan, and the definition of marriage is one man and one woman joined together by God in a permanent covenant union. I find it interesting that God isn't neutral on the topic of marriage. In fact, in context, God is surprisingly clear on how marriage works best. So when God created the world and then God gave us a book to begin to form a platform or a biblical worldview, God God wanted us to know how he thinks marriage works best. And isn't it true that we all sort of want to know about what God says a marriage looks like, how God says a marriage works best? Young or old, single or married, first marriage or third marriage, all of us desire to do marriage well, and nobody wants to hurt somebody with marriage. So this morning, I want to go to a scripture that has the potential to be very divisive because we're going to hear two scriptural teachings that can sort of raise the hair on our necks. Here's what we're going to hear. We're going to hear men are the head 
and women are to submit. Now we are all equally in a bad place. Now we are now men are having bad thoughts and women are having bad thoughts. Now, the, the reason this is divisive, I think, is twofold. First, I think many of us have been taught poorly on the topic. So we have formed opinions and dug in deep based on poor teaching. And that poor teaching has led to an abuse, if you will, of power and abuse of, of, of what Scripture teaches in our homes and also in Christianity's reputation. But here's the second thing. The Bible's teaching on this topic is, is not currently trending in our society. Uh, any kind of submission in our culture is actually viewed as, as weakness or, and oppressive. And any talk of submission just seems politically incorrect. But keep in mind, we are looking at what Scripture says. And once again, heard in its proper context we're going to discover that God's grace and God's mercy and God's freedom and how he says marriage works best. So, so let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing once again, and so it's a letter Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's pause right there. And we have to pause because of this. This is not directed to husbands and wives. This verse is actually directed to everybody on the planet. This isn't a marriage thing. This is a life thing. This is a society thing. This is how human beings do life best. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. In fact, this is key, I think, to understanding Everything Paul writes in the verses that follow. If you miss this, you miss the biblical worldview. This was written to everybody. This is the key. This is what people with a biblical worldview do for each other. So before we move on, let's get agreed upon an agreed upon definition for this word. So when, he, when Paul is speaking about how we all interact and how we relate, he says submit. And here's the agreed upon definition. Submission is voluntarily yielding in love. So when I'm speaking about submission, or when Paul is speaking about submission, we're talking about voluntarily yielding in love. Now, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where this was one of the highest values of the world? You know where you you see the opposite of this in our culture? Anytime traffic goes from two lane to one lane, you see the opposite of this in our culture. That there isn't a great deal of voluntarily submitting when traffic is trying to merge. It's significant to note that we are actually to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And that word reverence over there is actually, it's actually the word phobia. We get for phobia or fear. And what it means is fearful awe or fearful wonder. So as we look at Christ and we see the model for how we relate to each other, look at Jesus. Jesus voluntarily yielded at the cost of his life out of love. That is the stunning truth of the morning. As we do life to one another, as we do life with one another, 
to voluntarily yield out of love. And Paul is saying, this is how Christians are to do life. He then takes this powerful concept, this powerful idea, and he actually applies it to three different areas. One we talked about last week, but marriage, parenting, and the slave-master relationship. We're going to look at the marriage application. Verse 22, wives submit, voluntarily yield out of love to your husbands as to the Lord. Question, who has the power in this act? Who is, who is Paul talking to? Who is he urging to, to, to make this decision? Well, it, it's the wives, it's the wife. It's her choice. It's her will. And she is yielding to her husband as she does to Jesus himself. Don't miss this. The submission, her submission, is actually her service, not to the husband. The husband is almost irrelevant in this discussion. Her submission is actually her service to the Lord. Doesn't that just sort of stick in your craw? Doesn't that just sort of make you want to stand up and walk out? I mean, stay with me because what's being described here is actually very beautiful. But we have to keep on reading to get the full understanding. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, husbands or husbands-to-be, sit up and take notice. This is not conditional. The word if is not in this verse. The biblical view is as husbands, we are the head of the marriage. It's part of our identity according to the biblical worldview. And we can kick and we can scream all we want. But really the question is not whether or not the husband is the head. That's for someone else to debate. But according to the biblical worldview, the husband is the head. So the only question is what kind of head we will be in our marriages. God is clear on how husbands are to approach this covenant relationship. Men, you are the head. And because our Heavenly Father knows us so well, we're actually given direction on what it means to be the head of a household. It means this, to I do for my marriage what Jesus does for the church. So to be the head of the household isn't a power trip. To be the head of the household isn't the freedom to have to be waited on hand and foot. It's actually just the opposite. Because the scripture not only calls men to be the head of the church, but then it tells us what that looks like. And it's this, I do for my marriage what Jesus does for the church. And Jesus gave all of himself for the world, even to the point of greatest sacrifice. Friends, that is biblical headship. Please, please, please don't misunderstand me. If you have to tell your wife you are the head, she will be tempted to call you a different body part. That's not what this is about. 
This is not an excuse to power up over anybody. This isn't even something we need our spouse to acknowledge. This just is according to how God created the world. It's our role as husbands. We are the heads. We're not bullies. We're not powering up. We're the heads. And by that we mean, I do for my marriage what Jesus does for the church. Jesus didn't force or bully himself on anybody as the head of the church. He doesn't disrespect our free wills, and the same is true in the marriage covenant. You don't force anybody to do anything. There is no place for bullying or power moves in marriage. That is not God's idea. That is flowing from a place of insecurity, a place of fear, and a place of death. In my life, Being the head of my marriage is something Lisa and I rarely, if ever, talk about. But God and I talk about it frequently because God put me in that position. If I ever said to Lisa, you have to submit, I am the head, she'll probably box me in my head. Lisa and I have never made a decision with me acting alone because of some misunderstanding about what it means to be the head of my home. That's not how this works. So wives voluntarily yield out of love and husbands accept your responsibilities as the head. And then for further clarification, Paul brings these two roles together in the next verse. Now, as the church submits to Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as the same way, in a similar fashion, just like Jesus loved the church. And Paul makes it very clear gave himself, sacrificed himself up for her. Now look at these words again. Do you notice that the wives are to voluntarily yield out of of love and the husbands are to agape love? Husbands, agape love your wives. The love of the will, the love of choice. Wives voluntarily submit out of love. Husbands choose to be loving. The call to love, friends, is for both partners of the covenant. It's not just one versus the other. And both partners decide that for themselves. It isn't forced on anybody. Wives submit because they choose to voluntarily love. Husbands are the head who choose to love. And both of those choices are related to the individual's relationship to the Father. Through the cross, Jesus protected and provided for all of humanity. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love each other as Christ loved the church. Jesus protected us from the consequence of our sin. And he provided a way out through salvation. Husbands, we are protectors, but not as you might think it might think it to be. The Bible doesn't teach that men are all designed to be John Wayne. 
I have seen your marriages. For some of you, if you get in a fight with your wife, you are going to lose. That's just the reality. If you hear a noise in the middle of the night, you should make your wife get up and go see what that noise is. This isn't about protecting through physical strength. This is actually about protecting through surrender, protecting through sacrifice, protecting through love, through serving those we love. That's how Jesus protects the church. This, isn't, this is about going out of your way to make sure she knows she is loved. This isn't a love that will fight for her. This is a love that will hold her. This isn't a love that never shows weakness. This is a love that is vulnerable. This isn't a love that wins. This is actually a love that surrenders. This isn't a love that is wealthy. This is a love that sacrifices. So here's my question to all you ladies this morning. Is there any woman who would not be into that kind of love? Any woman on the planet who would not be into a love like that? See, being a leader and a servant in your home is not a contradiction It's loving like Christ loves the church. Servanthood does not invalidate leadership. It actually demonstrates leadership. Servant leadership is not dependent on how people respond to our leadership. And when two people decide to love, to voluntarily yield out of love, when that decision is made, well, then we never, we never give up on marriage. Let me take you through the Ephesians 5 passage again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her, her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Watch this. In the same way as what we just read, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Isn't that that an incredible picture? Just kind of a note on these two words. The word feeds, it's actually about nourishing. Get this, the word care. Some of the translations read the word cherish. To cherish literally means to keep warm. Who wouldn't wouldn't want to be loved like that? Well, apparently, marriage is where that kind of love is put on display. Marriage is where we show that kind of love. And then to close out this whole section about what it means to mutually submit to each other out of love and reverence for Christ, to close out this whole section just on the, on the marriage section, Paul gives us one verse of application. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. 
You can do your own research on this, but I, I find it to be true most of the time. Men desire most respect, and women desire most security. Maybe desire is not the right word. Maybe need would be a better word. Secular and sacred writers alike agree on some version of the distinct needs of men and women. Well, this distinction actually comes from Scripture. The distinction is actually because this is how the world works best according to God. We men are devastated when we feel disrespected by a spouse. If you ever see a couple where the woman repeatedly puts the man down in a public setting, he is actually being devastated. I think the head as God defines it and all that it means, all that it means, I think that head needs respect. The woman, she needs to be loved with a special kind of love, a securing kind of love. The verse is referring to God-like love, where the decision is made by the husband to cherish, to esteem, to serve, and value the wife, and the wife knows it. The wife knows it because she's heard it, she's sensed it, and she's experienced it from the husband. If Lisa knows my love for her is strong, she feels secure. If Lisa knows I love her deeply because I have told her I love her deeply, she feels secure. And if I know Lisa respects me as a husband, a father, and a man of God, I feel secure. I've shared before, one of the things that Lisa shares with me so often that I think communicates this is she'll say, Tom, you're a good man. And that makes me feel respected. And guess what? That was God's plan all along. Now this morning, in the chapel and at Pleasant View, our marriages are everywhere. I mean, we all have different, we're at different points in the journey. Some marriages are strong, and, and some are abusive. Some are distrusting or disrespecting. Some are healthy. So, so, so where, do we go, where do we go from here? Who, who initiates this conversation? Who, who talks at lunch about what we don't like or what we like about this biblical worldview? Who says, I'm sorry? Who goes first? Well, men, you know the answer to that. According to the biblical authority, the biblical model, we go first. We lead. We awkwardly try to move the ball down the field in our marriage. We are the head. And most likely, the woman already has some ideas that will help us have a better marriage, but they're waiting on the men to lead. And I, I can hear the pushback. You don't know my husband. You, know, you don't know my wife. You don't know what they did. You don't know what she did. You know, I got trust issues. My mom was this. My dad left. Whatever. And you're correct, I, I, I don't know your, your situation, but I do know myself and suspect the same might be true of you. There was a time when I thought I was beyond love too. In fact, there was a time when I didn't even care if I was loved by God. I certainly wasn't living in any way that made me lovable. And yet God found me. And loved me, even when I did not love him. So this morning, here we are. 
And there are two deals on the table. God's deal is pretty specific and clear. And that deal, the question is what it's going to look like in our home. And can we do this in a God-glorifying, mutually edifying way? The other deal on the table that I see throughout culture and so many in society, to be honest, so many in the walls of the church is, why don't we just take a stab at it on our own? And, and it may work for a season. But will it really be what is best? And I wonder, I can hear, Tom, is this even important? Why are we even having the discussion? We'll just do what works in our home, you do what works in your home, and let's just move on to something else. Why does this matter? I don't get to do as many weddings as I used to do back when the church was a little smaller, but one of the things I always include when I do get an opportunity to, to perform a wedding is a writing I discovered years and years and years ago by Lewis Smedes. And I just want to close by sharing with you this writing and why this whole marriage discussion is important. Words of Lewis Smedes. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises that they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship you will not desert, if you have people you will not forsake, if you have causes you will not abandon, then you're like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable she will be there even when being there cost her more than she wants to pay when a person makes a promise he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing he will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be with one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty and a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, she takes, stakes a claim on her personal freedom and power. When you make a promise, you take a hand in creating your own future. And that's what a marriage covenant is. It's a promise in the midst of uncertainty, here is one thing that is certain. And who doesn't want a marriage like that? Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to share on this holy covenant. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look at your scripture and to try to understand and see what it teaches. And Lord, I do pray for all who are listening, all who are watching, I pray that you would use these words as sort of an inventory in our marriages. I pray you would help husbands to rise up and to be the head in a biblical understanding. I pray you'd allow women 
and wives to rise up and to voluntarily yield themselves out of love in order that we can love each other just as you love the church, as you loved us. Holy Spirit, cover the conversation. Let us hold on to the things we need to hold on to. Let go of the things that we need to let go of in order that you might be, you might be heard and our marriages might become more and more into your likeness. For it's in your name we pray.